Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Tech Analyst Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined once again by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, it's been... It's been two weeks since we did this last, so it's a, we, we've got a lot of stuff has happened as it's turned out. We've got a lot to get to and talk about this week. I know. Let's uh, roll up our sleeves and get to work. Uh, I think clearly the most uh, interesting development that's occurred since we last spoke was uh, Intel CEO Brian Krasanich has left the building. Um, I don't know if this was officially worded being fired or... Uh, uh, stepping down or however you want to word it. But uh, the reasoning behind it, according to the Intel information, was that he had had a relationship with somebody um, in the company. I don't think it was a direct report. It was more of an indirect report, but whatever. And it was before his term as CEO, and it was against company policy. And they just found out about it in June of this year, so just this month. And it ended up being the end of BK's tenure as CEO at Intel. I mean, there, there's a lot of questions here about who should replace him and what happens afterwards. Do you think that there is more to this removal of BK than just the fraternization angle? I go back and forth uh, on this one, Ryan. Uh, on one hand, Intel is a very cut-and-dry company. I mean, they're in the business of zeros and ones, right? And, you know, you violate something or, or you don't. Now, the way that I understand the policy, it's not an immediate fireable offense. So uh, you will be punished, but getting fired is, is, is not going to happen uh, 100%. Um, so, you know, the stock price was at a 52-week high, it's actually the highest it's been in, in over five years. Stock price is high. I think BK has done a decent job diversifying uh, the company. Big stumbles on 10 nanometer. I would say a medium stumble on Nirvana uh, and and the timing. But um, he has put the company in a in, in a position. Uh, I think uh, from a, a future. Uh, standpoint looking at other markets and whether it's IOT, modems, um, even um, self-driving cars and FPGAs and really paying off the the heterogeneous computing. Uh, you know, I think I, my, my instinct tells me that there's something else going on there just yeah. because the way the way it, it it went down, but I could also talk myself into you know Intel is a binary company and uh, something was breached and 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 he left. Yep, I, I think we'll we'll probably it'll be a while before we get a, a a firm answer on what that is. But at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter why he's gone. He's gone now. Um, any. Any hints or ideas on who these replacement, who his replacement could be? Somebody from the inside, from somebody from the outside. As far as I know, Intel's never had, they never brought in an external person to be a CEO. And in fact, they tend to not bring in outsiders very often at all for these upper level uh, positions, right? Yeah. So let's talk about inside outside. I think there's always the tendency for, oh my gosh, you need to go outside. Well, ask HP how that went. Uh, in their four outsider CEOs, it did, did didn't go did not go well. Uh, yeah. many times. 
uh, but other companies ha have done that that really well. I think if we see Intel go with an outsider, it will be affirmation that the company wants the strategy to change. Now, uh, this wasn't BK's strategy, it was the company's strategy. Any strategy yeah. that BK put in place had to be approved by the board. So. In a way, if the board goes outside, I think the board is acknowledging that they made a mistake on on the strategy. Hmm. Uh, my instinct tells me that they'll still go inside, even though a lot of the folks who I think had been groomed initially had had left for for one reason uh, or another, uh, whether that was uh, Renee James, uh, Diane Bryant, uh, Kirk Scougan. Uh, Pat some, Gelsinger. Pat Gelsinger. Uh, there were also some Ill illnesses and even a death that uh, that happened yeah. that that, that kept some other folks uh, from coming on. But my uh, my money is on Murthy uh, and Naveen Shinoy. Uh, now mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. Murthy, they get somebody who's highly technical, uh, and technically he's an outsider because he's from Qualcomm, um, and. Uh, their biggest expense at Intel is either fab or engineering resources. And, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, Naveen, uh, he was um, uh, a, a TA for uh, Intel CEO two generations ago. Oh. Very business focused, uh, very customer focused. He's technical, but Naveen currently, he ran uh, the personal computer group uh, when Kirk left for Lenovo. But he's currently running DCG, uh, which, by the way, it includes AI, it includes IoT, it includes um, uh, storage uh, as well, and networking. So, you know, in a way, a lot of growth areas for them. <laughs> exactly. So my 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 odds on are are an insider uh, at the company. I, I would agree. I, I would agree with that, and I think. I think the immediate is, oh, you need somebody from the outside who can be, because it, you mentioned Intel making a lot of money, but there's a ton of external viewpoints that like, ah, they're kind of struggling in some of these areas. They fell behind NVIDIA uh, in the AI race pretty dramatically. They're letting AMD back into the race in the server space and in the consumer space. So like there, there's this pressure uh, both to get rid of BK and to replace them with somebody on the outside. I, but I think Intel's such an enormous company to think that there is not a leader that has the necessary qualifications, knowledge, engineering, uh, background inside that company to, to handle this, I think is is a crazy thought. So I, I would agree with somebody on the inside. And I don't know who you would even try to get from the ex from from the outside to come in and 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 do anything dramatic in there uh, inside that company. So so what happens now with the direction of the, of the company, right? If if you look at those segments, some of the ones you mentioned, AI, um, the wireless connectivity, data center, consumer, IoT. Do you think do you think anything changes in the in the short term? for Intel's uh, groups with this departure? Yeah, short term, there will be no changes. Uh, the, interim, the interim CEO, the, um, uh, the CFO, isn't going to make any changes at sure. all. And you know, strategically, they have to do AI as it's uh, eating a lot more cycles than it was uh, two or three years ago, and it'll probably do more. Uh, I think G, uh, GPUs, uh, they're going to have to lean into that again. 
Intel strategy to me, their best strategy is a full service provider with CPUs, but also a full line of accelerators and some magic uh, software for developers that makes it easy for them to ping pong between all of these these accelerators. So I don't I don't see anything changing in the short term. I mean, we, we could see some longer term questioning of, of wireless. Uh, and then that comes down to, you know, in my opinion, how pervasive will wireless be in PCs? It, it's hard to make a business case out of out of uh, spending billions. And I, the last number we saw was four billion dollar loss in wireless. Um, mm. Actually, the latest number I think was three point eight uh, two years ago. Losing that much money, but. The, the justification uh, at the time was we're going to spread this across all of our PCs and, and IT. Right. So that to me uh, will, be, will, will, be, will be looked at. Uh, I think in, uh, AMD's rise uh, you know, in, in part has been uh, due to two things. First of all, Intel has moved resources off of client computing and onto either DCG or paying for these growth areas. Mm. Uh, second of all, uh, the 10 nanometer issue, which uh, you know whether they're two years late or one year late or three years late, it doesn't matter. They're late, uh, but a lot of the new designs are locked up inside of of, of, of 10 nanometers. So, in a way, it was a bet against AMD being competitive. Uh, Intel's losing that bet, but it's currently not harming them financially uh, at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on most of those points. I, I think Intel is expanding in all the right directions, and I think you know, their, their many-pronged approach on the AI side will probably continue, and that's probably that's, that's the one that is getting the most investor attention, the most external um, um, eyes on. So we'll see how that goes. But obviously, once, uh, once Intel picks who the replacement is, we'll be able to reevaluate this, this whole discussion based on what we know about that person's history and capabilities and maybe what they might say publicly about the company when they, uh, when they get started on the job. Let's move on to some other topics. Uh, you had on here Slack outages, and I agreed with this uh, story inclusion here. Slack was down yesterday for, I think it ended up being three and a half hours or something. Slack, for people who don't know, what you should is one of these collaborative team communication tools, you know, marketed as somewhere between a replacement for email and a project management resource. Um, Probably it's still the biggest player in the field, despite competition from from Microsoft and others. Uh, and I utilize this with my team every day. And from the hours of six thirty a.m. to you know ten or so a.m. yesterday, when I, I I sat at my desk and struggled to figure out how well how do I tell everybody what to do today? I was like, I guess I could send an email, but that seems kind of weird. <laughs> It is, you know. I'm glad you gave the the riot, you know, the the, the intro here because not everybody uses these next generation uh, tools. I mean, it's it's yeah. mostly limited right now to tech companies, right? Um, but I, it's one thing for if you remember when Twitter first started, the fail whale, um, and everybody mm-hmm. was you know angry and and wondering how how the company would go forward. Uh, you know, I'll posit this is very different in that 
you can't have a business tool go down. And I don't care if Slack has you know 99% uptime. It's it's that one percent that that kills you, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what does being offline for half a day mean to the thousands of companies that that are out there? Uh, I mean, if this happened with Office 365, I mean, it would just be you know, the entire world would come, uh, a business world would come to a, a screeching halt. So yeah, I, I think that this is something that that Slack is, is going to have to literally um, not never have because we have outages even at AWS, but they're going to have to prove to enterprises uh, of their... Uh, uh, reliability and failover. Otherwise, Microsoft Teams, Google Hangouts, WebEx Teams will, mm. will just play the reliability card and roll right over them. It's it's interesting because you know that that three hour time span where I couldn't uh, uh, use Slack and communicate with my team. It, it, the three hours didn't totally kill me because just of the business model we have or whatever. For others, it might be different. But what it did give me was three hours of researching what the competition is to Slack, <laughs> what the alternatives are, right? And and if you're Slack, you can't have that. You know, if you're any of these companies, you can't have that because as soon as you know, if AWS is down, you start looking at what the competition is for that, what the alternatives are, and the, and the same thing applies here. Uh, and so every 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 twenty minutes you're down, you start to look at well, how, how do I, how am I utilizing this tool, and am I using the right tool? Um, so yeah, I, I I think it's interesting. I think it's it's more of a. Uh, kind of a disclaimer for these services in general, like the importance of the uptime and the reliability and it's, you know, it's consumers are, we, we got used to blaming our computers if they crashed or blue screened or, you know, a windows update came in and did something right. But when it's somebody else's problem causing us an issue, it becomes much more aggravating. I feel it is. And, and for large companies, it also uh, ratchets up the, the contrast ratio uh, between, let's say, Microsoft Teams that can be on-prem or off-prem, right? Mm-hmm. Even even though uh, public cloud with failover is is probably more reliable. When you come to things like uh, the government and and places like that who who need on-prem, I, I just think this is one big black mark. Yeah, it for, is uh, for Slack that. As I look at their outage calendar, they had an outage on on the 27th. They had May 21st and 23rd, April 30th, January 9th. Um, you know, this is not some one-off uh, that's that's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's move on to the the one-year anniversary of AMD's Epic processor. You wrote a story up on Forbes about this, basically asking the question of how well has this processor done for AMD in its first year, uh, you know, coming back from initial coverage, you're talking about Intel owning 99% of this processor market. What is what are Epic's keys to success? What stood out to you about this kind of first year of integration of the Epic processor? So yeah, so first off, I, I try to look at it from multiple angles: uh, the product itself, uh, the ecosystem. Uh, the target markets, um, how they position it effectively, and then uh, go to market. And I don't think anybody can can argue that it is a competitive CPU. Uh, I think that AMD got a little bit later start 
on the ecosystem than it eat that than people had thought they would have. But I think this mm. was part of AMB's plan where they didn't want to pour a uh, hundred million dollars into an ecosystem play before they saw how well Epic performed, right? Where, where normally you would do these things in parallel, and I'm sure that's what AMD gotcha. is doing for seven nanometer. So this is why you haven't seen the huge uh, market share increase, just because it takes a heck of a lot longer to crank out a server ecosystem, even if it's cloud. Mm. Uh, the great news, though, is is that, is that they have committed deployments. Most of the non-Intel uh, server processor action had a lot of people kicking the tires, but but literally uh, no deployments. Okay, maybe one, yeah. maybe two, but very small. We've had five or six people uh, pony up, uh, big players, um, all the way from uh, Baidu uh, to uh, Azure, essentially pony up and say uh, we are going to deploy a ten cent. Uh, is, mm-hmm, is another mm-hmm. one. So, um, I think from a, from a one year in, uh, just just to net it out, even before looking at enterprise adoption, uh, it is ninety five percent positive uh, for the company. And quite frankly, with the ten nanometer push out, I uh, it is a gift to to AMD because they're going to have seven nanometer silicon sampling. Uh, Likely before server OEMs will have the latest uh, production-ready 10 nanometer uh, server silicon, and mm-hmm. in my head, I equate I equate Intel 10 to TSMC and Global Foundry 7. Yeah, that that seems reasonable. I, I agree. I, I think the the I think the first year has been really interesting. I, I do believe that some people, and I would agree to this on some degree as well, is is that the the adoption rate was was maybe less aggressive than we thought, but I think that makes sense. Your explanation of you know they they couldn't do the rollout planning and the and the marketing and the platform positioning until they knew what this product was going to be. And now, with the seven nanometer, with the second generation, you know the Zen two architecture, they can kind of do this in parallel. You'll also notice that uh, AMD is. They, they pushed Zen Plus on the consumer side with the Ryzen 2000 series. They're doing the same with the Threadripper 2000 series, but they're not going to do that with the Epic platform just because the cadence in the data center market is such that trying to do this every year with a new architecture uh, is, is pretty difficult. So by waiting for the Zen 2 architecture to come out, I think they'll have more than a than a one-step advantage here. I think they'll be able to maybe get up to a, a running head start when it comes to Epic uh, Zen 2 7 nanometer versus Intel's 10 nanometer tech, and that's really if you're if you're AMD, this is a this is a gift, and you should be executing and putting all kinds of resources to make sure that uh, you are taking advantage of what they've been able to uh, what they've been able to to to, to do so far. Yeah, and I think at Compounded. this point, it's uh, it's not you know if they're going to take share, it's how much mm-hmm. how much share. Uh, that that they're going to take. Um, j- by the way, just to bring these dates and make them real, it takes enterprise data center a year of testing on a new architecture, a year. Mm. Uh, it takes the cloud providers probably six months. Um, now a, a skew off of a a platform that's already tested takes about three months. 
which is why I totally get why um, AMD doesn't want to change everything at the same time with Epic, because essentially you're you're pressing the reset button on on everything as it relates yeah. to testing. And I compare that to about a three month test time for client based uh, consumer. Hmm. Yep. Uh, we also wanted to mention uh, some ISC coverage here. You have uh, Lenovo taking number one overall in the top 500 systems, which is a pretty impressive mark for uh, the, the timeline in which that occurred. Yeah, it really is. And, and, and the cool part is, is how it happened. And, and I like, I, I, you know, I'll admit, I, I like BHAG's uh, big, hairy, audacious goals uh, that, that execs <laughs> set out. Uh, because you know it either gets the exec uh, to get you know carried out on a on a throne or you know they get run out which with pitchforks right mm. uh, we've seen processor makers who have put these big uh, aspirational goals out there but at Lenovo uh, Kirk Scougan uh, ex Intel guy mm. said that by by 2020 uh, Lenovo would be number one in HPC as measured by the number of top 500 systems well. Two years early, uh, they they hit it. So there are more Lenovo systems in the top 500 than any other manufacturer, and that's after uh, Scougan uh, about a year ago, Babe Ruthed that they would be number one. And by the way, nobody believed him. I was super skeptical because at the time uh, Lenovo DCG was was a bit into chaos. They had at that point three generations of new senior management. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and and my thought at the time was, well, IBM had done really well in supercomputing, and a lot of those installations were in Western Europe and the United States, and Lenovo coming in with the sensitivity to all things China, with Lenovo yep. headquartered out of China, uh, but to their credit, uh, people uh, really embraced Lenovo, and Lenovo put some big investments in, particularly into Western Europe, to, to be able to drive it. And the reality is that that Lenovo DCG has run out of Raleigh. I'm going to be there in two weeks. Um, and um, you know, the security that uh, and the way that they do their manufacturing uh, is, is, is super secure. And, and to their credit, uh, they got number one. I would say the other the other big news that I was following uh, at ISC was uh, where IBM and Nvidia uh, had put the number one. Uh, you know, they want basically won the top 500 uh, yep. with their uh, Oak Ridge National Lab Summit supercomputer. Right. And I had written about this uh, a couple weeks back uh, in in context to the, their mixed floating point performance, the 3x a flop, but with Linpack, it's um, the 32-bit, um, sorry, the uh, the full full float, and they got number one as expected uh, in that, and that was the uh, that was the big news uh, there. Yeah. Yep. I think the other one was uh, you know Intel uh, not to be outdone by the IBM power and Nvidia crowd. Uh, reiterated that 95% of the top 500 systems yeah. are based on a, an Intel processor. 
it's you know we, we talk about the inroads that AMD is making. We talk about you know IBM and Nvidia and what they're doing in the data center as well. And then you come back to that statistic and you you go, oh yeah, that's right. Don't forget. And and you, you almost have to feel bad for Intel on this side that they have to kind of keep reminding people of this. But it is it it's their job going forward is to remind people of how uh, dominant they are in these positions and what a leadership role they have in all of these systems and uh, markets. Even though NVIDIA is getting headlines or IBM and uh, Power9 might be getting headlines, it really comes down to, hey, you know, w- we are still 95% of this space, by the way. Just a little heads up. Take a look at the quarterly earnings if you if you want to see some detail on it. That's right. And, and yeah. the, the, the big reason there is when it comes to programmability of an x86 processor, it is, it is really easy and there is 30 years of history behind the tools to make that work that people are comfortable with. Yep. Uh, and, and the second thing is, is that um, uh, processor makers like AMD just can't pop into a market and expect to be embraced. Now, I do expect next year, based on nothing more than Epic's floating point performance, to be, to be uh, pretty well... Uh, in in these lists because AMD didn't show up on a single top 500 system this year, mm. GPU or CPU. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. You wrote a piece up on Forbes as well, talking about moving away from the iPhone 10 to the Samsung Galaxy S9 Plus is your primary device, which is a coveted position in any analyst's or media's pocket, right? You know, if you're if you're used to carrying i carry multiple phones. I also tend to have two laptops with me at any given time. And there's always, there's always, a, there's always a favorite child, right? Of what you're utilizing at the time, what you think you can be the most productive on, what you feel like uh, gives you the best battery life, the best features. Uh, and you went into some detail on, you know, what the messaging features were that made you move over or uh, the wireless speeds. What, what were kind of the highlights there for for making this move. Yeah, you, you nailed the life of an analyst uh, in there for sure. <laughs> I always carry three phones, and one is my one is my primary that, that has my personal number in it. And and I shifted from the iPhone 10 to the uh, Galaxy S9 Plus. It was really about productivity. Uh, I, I I felt a lot more productive with uh, the S9 Plus than I did with with the iPhone 10. And one thing is I can get all my messages off my, not a few of the messages, off off the S9 uh, on my Windows PC. I oh, can, sure. I can also reply to uh, messages that, that come in over text. And if you've got a look at the new Microsoft phone app that should be coming uh, in RS5, it's going to up that game even more. And, and yes, I, I do still carry Apple and, and have a MacBook. And I know I can get some of my messages on my Mac, but I, get, I like to get all my messages on on my PC uh, from uh, from my phone. And the second one was was something we've talked about a ton. Uh, um, the modem inside of the S9 Plus is a lot faster and more reliable on the edges. And you know, I'm sure you've been here before. You're on the plane. You're on the tarmac. You've got one or two bars. And somebody yeah. sent you this incredibly important document, uh, and you know you don't have Wi-Fi on the plane, uh, or the Wi-Fi sucks, or if you're at an event, right? We go to 30, 40 of these a year, 
where you're trying to take pictures and um, and and put them on social media um, on on other phones I had no bars but with the s9 plus I would have one or two bars I'd be back in business and I'm just uh, I see in the future Samsung leading I expect them to have the first 5g uh, phone uh, as well um, battery life yeah. was the other one it's basically fine-tune and fine grain okay that max setting when you just gotta have uh, it uh, it, it will give me you know a full day at a minimum to be able to text uh, text uh, the camera too best low-light camera on the market um, you know I, I question the security of Android but 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 you have Knox uh, and just you know little stuff like Samsung pay I don't have to have a place that takes Apple Pay that has NFC. Yeah, that's true. Um, I like that when my review time with that phone a lot. Yeah, I mean, so so there's just no no question there. Uh, Dexpad um, is the other one I'm going to be writing a review uh, up on that later. So a lot of this is about choice. A lot of this is about being and feeling more productive, even down to only have to carrying uh, USB-C chargers and cables. I don't have to mm-hmm. have lightning, right? Um, now, with that said, some things that I missed, right? I mean, there are some trade-offs that you're making. Mm-hmm. I was a huge Apple Watch uh, guy, and having two, wearing two watches is just way too nerdy for me. <laughs> yeah. I actually did Don't that, do that for a week, okay? Oh, no. And it was just like, no, no, no I can't do that. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the Gear S3 is nice, but it's just, it's not, it, it's not, it's not the Apple Watch. Yep. Uh, iMessage, right? I'm that guy in the family who turns the entire Grext green, and my videos suck, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, you force everybody else to do that way too. I like the term you use in here of, of being the outcast. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am the family outcast. in that family. I'm the Android guy who is now making the family Grext suck. So, yeah. Uh, let me hold my breath and RCS will fix all of this. Okay. Um, it won't. Um, but, but anyways, um, Hmm. yeah, I have switched. It's interesting. It's good. It's good. To, you know, I, I did this, uh, I think it was a year ago. It was before the iPhone 10 came out where I did that as well. And I said, okay, six months with the, or maybe it was three months with, uh, I think it was the note eight as a primary. And just like you found a lot of positives and just a little bit of negatives that came back to, to, I wouldn't even say negatives. They're just, it's just, there are enough differences and you get used to certain things, which is one of the, one of the advantages Apple has is once you're in that ecosystem, it's hard. It's hard to get out of there necessarily. A couple of other quick things we can touch on. I wrote a story uh, that went in Fast Company a couple of weeks ago um, about Disney's future in AR and VR. And the title of the story was "Disney Should Own Theme Parks VR and AR Future." Um, and this was I, I went uh, to Disney World a few weeks ago with my family, and I went to the void which is a vr experience it's not a game it's it's more like a like an amusement park ride type thing you go in you strap on a backpack that's got a computer in it you've got a helmet on that has your oculus based vr glasses you've got headphones and microphone kind of built into the straps of the of the helmet and Unlike other VR things, even the highest end that you can buy at your house, the HTC Vive, where you're kind of con- 
constrained to like a 15 by 15 space, maybe 20 by 20 space uh, in terms of actually moving around. This is using, using augmented reality to you actually walk through a warehouse. You walk from room to room to room, interacting with physical items that are augmented in, on, your, you know, on the screen that you're looking through or looking at to look like the Star Wars universe. They have a Ghostbusters one as well, and they just did like a, a horror-themed version of it as well. And, you know, long story short, it was by far the most impressive VR experience I've ever had. And it was kind of truly eye-opening to what the future could be. And I go into the story uh, talking about how they could expand this in one step to making it a, a larger space, you know, maybe make it a full acre. And now there's, instead of a maximum of four people per session, you could make it a maximum of 100 or 200 people per session. And you could do all kinds of different experiences in that way. And then even looking 10 years out um, to where we have thinner light, you know, just basically sunglasses, glasses shaped and styled AR overlays that you walk into Disney World or you walk into some theme park, there's no reason why there aren't characters up in the windows uh, through AR, that you're not interacting with people in a different way um, than, than you are today that can basically fundamentally change what that theme park experience is. Disney is, is an investor in the void, uh, which is the company that built these these experiences out. And um, I, just for me, this is an easy thing for you spend you spend a handful of millions of dollars you you're disney you don't care about that you own this technology you develop it you perfect it and in in 10 years this is every disney park uh their primary attraction and to me it was it was a super impressive demonstration of uh entertainment purposes of vr for for as much crap as we give VR for being slow to develop, uh, slow to be integrated and adopted. I think once you actually run through one of these 20 minute demos, you go, yep, I get it. I understand now. Uh, it needs a little bit of tweaking for, I don't want to have to wear a backpack everywhere I go. Uh, but it's, it's painfully obvious that this is, this is where we're going. I'll tell you what, I am so excited, uh, about this and, you know, given that it's it's the big free space capability that uh, that that brings this, and obviously we're seeing, um, you know, backpacks are not what everybody is going to want, but um, it it's the future, and I think gives a much higher quality experience. But yeah, I was really excited to read this, and uh, I want to go, um, and of course it'll be a business trip. There you go. Um, uh, uh, because of that, but actually, they're opening up one in Austin. Oh, exciting! Huh? Yeah, they're they're opening up one of these in Austin, so you'll be able to do that. I I haven't tried the horror themed one. I'm a little bit too chicken for that. I I think a fully immersive. Um, I think it's like I don't know. It must. It's, I forget what the actual thing is, but it's 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 horror movie type theme, and I'm like, nah. We'll see. I'll let some other people try that one out. Right. Try that one out first. Uh, but pretty cool stuff. If you if you get a chance, uh, if you listeners get a chance, check out that story on Fast Company. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting thoughts in there. And then the the final thing we'll touch on really quickly is there have been too many rumors coming around and too many stories written about it for us to avoid it. The uh, it looks like Qualcomm is planning something called a Snapdragon 1000 um, that 
is a chip that apparently is designed specifically for Windows PCs. Super high performance, although they don't mention core count or frequency or anything like that. Uh, they mentioned that the development system they found was using 16 gigs of memory, 256 gigs uh, of storage, still using UFS, but uh, 256 gigs. Apparently the TDPs are bumping from 6 watts to 12 watts or so, um, and that they are targeting, you know, desktop or Windows mobile notebook class performance. You and I were at the ARM event where they detailed the Cortex-A76 IP, and they talked very openly about targeting laptop class performance, uh, you know, being within 10% of the IPC of Skylake while having significantly better die size uh, advantages and power efficiency advantages. So it seems it's probably plausible. pretty likely. It's yeah, plausible. plausible for sure. Yeah, and it's also probable that if this Snapdragon 1000 is real, it's using that A76 architecture to some degree. So, I mean, any thoughts on this? This is clearly something that Qualcomm needs and that they their partners need to, to make the, the most competitive solutions they can. Uh, but this is this is a next year thing as well. I can't tell you how excited I am about all of this stuff. You know, the uh, the, the, the PC industry stagnated uh, for a while and then you know whether it's the sexiness of, of Threadripper uh, at the high end uh, on the performance side or or you know the, the new type of Use it use case that an always connected uh, PC, hopefully always on, uh, yep. brings. So I am super excited. And what this is going to do, if if it's true, is 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 Intel is going to have to uh, react uh, mm-hmm. to this. I, and I, I've always wanted uh, somebody again, if this is true. To be able to, to to put the investment in to scale it beyond five watts, right? Right. I look at tablets, and tablets peak at about four and a half, uh, five watts, and to see to, to 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 have a company like Qualcomm put the work in to scale uh, the wattage, to to be able to get the performance if 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 you wanted it. We've never yep. seen this before, right? I mean, no. we've seen it in servers. Where ARM architecture goes beyond um, uh, uh, five watts, but but uh, never never a PC. So I'm yeah, excited. I, I'm I'm really excited about this too. I think the Snapdragon 850 announcement was you know a little understated. It, it's it's a similar architecture. We know what 845 is. We don't know what SD 1000 is, right? And we don't know that it's. I think the theory going around is that it's not simply a rebranded, you know, slightly overclocked mobile part yeah. anymore, that they're going to really build something that's targeted to this while still, and I, this is the key part, maintaining their efficiency advantages, their die size advantages, their ability to be always on, always connected, high speed, LTE and 5G connections. Uh, all that adds up to what I think is a, a very kind of market shifting product potential. And this is, you know, the point that I've been trying to make too, you know, whenever I see a Geekbench that shows, uh, you know, an iPhone outperforming a, a Core i7, you know, I, I, first I want to puke. Um, but, but this also validates that you can't just throw a mobile processor um, with small caches 
um, onto a different operating system and, and have it work. Um, I don't know if you're a Geekbench hater or lover. Um, I, I, I love it uh, when it's comparing um, like architectures, but I hate it when it's trying to compare like iOS or Android to Windows or Mac OS X. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, when I go aggressive on Twitter, that's like, you know, okay, well, show me the evidence, guys. Well, what this would do is validate that you can't just throw a mobile architecture at a PC problem or operating system, right? You need yep. bigger caches. You need multi-level caches uh, to make uh, to make this thing work. Yep, agreed. All right, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, long episode, but like I said, we we had missed uh, some some important stories along the way. So uh, check out all of our previous episodes at the Tech Analysts. You can find links to the RSS feeds or the iTunes page or Spotify or Google Play or whatever it is you listen to your podcasts on. And you can subscribe there so that you don't miss our riveting future upcoming episodes along the way. Thanks for joining me, Pat. Appreciate it. Have a great 4th of July, everybody. Yeah, you too. We'll see you guys later. Bye.